How does fidelity to America's famous outlaws Bonnie and Clyde bring a romance to its tragic end? The marriage of Buck and Blanche Barrow is the focus of today's footnoting history. It's Christine. As always, we're going to take a trip back in time. Today, it's to the 1930s in the United States. More specifically, we're going to follow the story of Buck and Blanche Barrow. That's Clyde Barrow's brother and sister-in-law. Buck and Blanche weren't headline makers. They were more like featured players in the news. I can say, though, that Buck's fraternal loyalty to Clyde had a titanic impact on his marriage to Blanche, and it's impossible to talk about one without the other, so yes, Bonnie and Clyde will appear. A lot. You see, it's Valentine's Day weekend, and I wanted to cover a love story, but Bonnie and Clyde's, well, that one's been done before by numerous people. We've all seen or at least heard about the movies and songs and musicals. So, I chose Buck and Blanche because, well, I like them, and their association with the outlaw pair caused their undoing. No, I guess this is a spoiler alert. A happy ending isn't going to happen in this podcast. But with a gunslinging lifestyle, you kind of have to expect that. Let's put things into context for a second. Our time in question is the shift between the so-called Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression of the 1930s. In fact, the famous stock market crash that sent most Americans into a downward spiral of poverty occurred the same year that Buck and Blanche got married. The thing is, the great Gatsby-esque lifestyle that preceded that with the champagne and the parties and the fancy cars, yeah, no, that wasn't Buck and Blanche's life, or Bonnie and Clyde's for that matter. The America that they lived in revolved more around farms than flappers, and they weren't living on sprawling southern plantations either. These were people who were barely scraping by a long time before the Depression set in. I'd venture so far as to say that none of the people in our group ever knew what it was like to be comfortable, let alone rich. Okay. So our lovers had all the markings of a bad boy meets good girl pairing, like you would see on modern dramas. Buck, whose birth name was Marvin and was seven years older than Clyde, for anybody who wants to keep track, grew up as the third of seven Barrow children in a family that spent years living on wages accrued through migrant work, meaning they moved around a lot to follow the harvests and get work wherever they could. But eventually the family settled in West Dallas and ran a gas station. Buck's education was minimal, but he had a reputation for being pleasant, an obedient son, and a slow talker. As far as looks, he was slim and square-jawed and looked tall next to his future wife Blanche. By the time he met Blanche, he already had two failed marriages under his belt, one which produced a son and the other a daughter. He'd also already had several run-ins with the law, including stealing turkeys for Christmas. It's been proposed that he felt guilty for his little brother following him into thieving and law-breaking. And while I don't know what actually went on in his mind, 
He was definitely devoted to Clyde and tried to make sure that his brother got into as little trouble as possible whenever they got caught. It was a pattern that would last. They would commit crimes together and then he would be the one to get into deeper trouble. Maybe it was a protective nature, but you know, this is kind of as much of bromance as it is romance at this point. In 1929, Buck met and fell for a young lady named Blanche Caldwell. She was an Oklahoma-born and raised farmer's daughter and daddy's girl who admitted openly that she was spoiled rotten. This tiny little thing with wavy hair was also a licensed beautician who had run away to West Dallas to escape her physically and emotionally abusive husband. You see, her mother had forced her to marry the man she hadn't wanted to. Once she met Buck, she called it love at first sight, and she planned to stick by him no matter what. This was a mentality that would be tested quickly because later that same month, Buck was shot and arrested while his brother and a friend escaped from a robbery the three had committed together. Talk about starting things off right with a new girlfriend. <laughs> In January of 1930, our Romeo, if you will, Buck, landed himself in this Texas state pen, with a sentence of four or five years, depending on what source you're looking at. Buck didn't want to be in prison, and can you blame him? Even though he asked his mother to make sure that Blanche wrote to him, how could that be the same as actually seeing his new beloved? So, two months after his sentence was rendered and he was in prison, Buck did what hundreds of people, thousands of people rather, probably wanted to do. He left. He just walked out while on work detail and never went back. Instead, he found his lady friend, the girl he had only met about two weeks before getting arrested, the one he called Baby and who affectionately called him Daddy in return. Blanche set about getting a divorce from her first husband as soon as possible, and when she did, she married Buck in July of 1931. Okay, as an aside, when Buck and Blanche got married, he was 28, she was 20. As I just mentioned, Buck was entering his third marriage, and Blanche was on her second. Similarly, Bonnie Parker was already estranged from her first husband when she met and took up with Clyde, despite never getting a divorce from him. So, out of the four of them, only one person, Clyde, was on his first serious relationship in his 20s. That's a lot of divorces going on. Anyway, good girl marries bad boy. We know that. Suffice it to say, Blanche wasn't too thrilled with the notion of living with an escaped convict for the rest of her life, and that wasn't how she wanted to begin her marriage to the man she loved. So, with the help of her mother-in-law, she convinced Buck that he had to turn himself back in and serve the rest of his sentence. That is, after they had a brief honeymoon, of course, because, well, she did have her priorities, people. I like to think about how those conversations went. I mean... He must have had it really, really bad for her if he agreed to do it, which he did, because shortly after Christmas of 1931, he surrendered himself back into the prison system to serve out the rest of his time, a move which probably filled Blanche with a lot of hope for the future. Still, separation stinks, so it must have come as brilliant news when they learned that Buck's mother had done the legwork to get him a full pardon from the state of Texas. He was released from prison in March of 1933 into the arms of his waiting wife, who now believed she was married to a man who had a clean slate and was going to go straight for the rest of things. It was like a dream come true. Abusive relationship gives way to ex-con, 
and the ex-con served his time to get with her. It's just all fantastic. But come on, we all know I'm not telling the story because that's where it ends. No, 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 no. Blanche's dreams of domestic bliss came to an end very shortly after reuniting with Buck when he declared that he wanted to see his brother. Because as much as Buck loved Blanche, he also loved Clyde. While Buck was in and out of prison, and in again and out again, Clyde wasn't exactly idle. He too had been arrested, but broke out with Bonnie's help. He'd undergone a series of abuses in the prison system that led to not only him committing his first murder, but it gave him a mentality that meant he would eventually go back and raid the prison farm to try and free people out of revenge. When Buck was out, he no doubt learned that his brother and Bonnie were traveling around with friends, robbing places, stealing cars, and leaving multiple murders in their wake. He became determined to see him, probably, they say, to try and talk him out of continuing like this. Blanche argued with Buck, told him not to get mixed up with his brother again, but knew that that was pretty much fighting a losing battle. She would later put it as, quote, I couldn't bear to have him leave me not knowing what hour of the day or night I may receive word of him being riddled by bullets fired from some officer's machine gun, end quote. Sounds like she knew it was going to be a joy ride and a barrel of laughs. The way Blanche tells the story, Clyde agreed not to involve Buck in anything that would get him in trouble. He knew Buck wouldn't want that since he had just been granted a new lease on life and had a pretty little wife with him. Buck, clearly wanting to be around his brother, decided it would be a good idea to join the group in Joplin, Missouri, near the border of Oklahoma and Kansas, if you want to look at it on a map. The idea was that they would lay low, living off the money Clyde had already acquired, and basically stay out of trouble. Joplin was a town known for being safe to outlaws, and there were more places like that than you would assume. The attitude in some places was actually more pro-outlaw than pro-lawman because a good many people were frustrated with how poor they were and had resentment or some sort of disillusionment with the government. Not everybody, of course, but, you know, it existed. So next thing you know, our newlyweds, or rather, Buck and a very unhappy Blanche, are living in Joplin with Bonnie, Clyde, and their friend, W.D. Blanche refers to it as a time where they did have some fun, she did most of the cooking, but Clyde helped, so there's a domestic image for you. He loved French fried potatoes and English peas with cream and pepper. I'm sure you always wanted to know that. Various robberies were committed during this time, but it's one of those cases where it was later stated that Buck didn't partake in any of them, and that has never actually been 100% confirmed, but that's the general case that's been made. The group played poker at night and generally made a lot of noise living it up until it caught the attention of neighbors. The neighbors alerted the police and had them come and see what was going on. What happened next can only be described as an encounter where, you'll have to pardon my expression, but all hell broke loose. Because Bonnie and Clyde did not want to get arrested. As far as Clyde was concerned, arrest was probably worse than death. The Barrow group wanted to flee, but that was almost impossible with the police right outside the door, already suspicious that they weren't being allowed in. I bet you you can see where this is going. The Barrows unleashed shots and killed two constables during the exchange. With Clyde behind the wheel, the Barrow gang flew out of the garage, and Buck grabbed his wife, who was both stunned and upset because she had just lost her dog. Little White Snowball ran out into the mayhem and was never to be seen again. 
Almost everyone involved received some sort of injury, but they did get away. And they also got their names in the papers, now adding Buck and Blanche to the list of criminals alongside Bonnie and Clyde, with rewards put out for their capture. Sometimes it just isn't wise to take up with wanted criminals, even if they are your brother. So just keep that in mind. Almost as important as the fact they got away is what they left behind. If you've ever seen the pictures of Bonnie and Clyde where they're standing in front of a car and Bonnie's pointing a shotgun at Clyde, pretty much all of those pictures are from undeveloped film that Blanche said was from her camera that was found in the Joplin apartment after they left it. It was also found with Buck's now useless pardon papers and their marriage license. Next few months were basically a cycle of hiding and stealing and being in the papers left and right, except for one notable exception, and this is where, again, family ties come into play. Blanche was sent back to Dallas, alone, to arrange a meeting for Mother's Day with the Barrow and Parker families, and she pulled it off. Then, in June, Buck and Blanche bid adieu temporarily to Bonnie and Clyde and visited Blanche's father, because family was always the top priority to these people. By the end of June, they were all reunited, and the routine remained much the same, only with a lot more close calls than they had had prior. There were some fun times with the group, but Buck and Blanche still were very much together, even though they had more than one argument about the way everything was going. It wasn't the kind of life that could put a toll on a relationship or anything. No, not at all. No one would think that would be the case. In July, the group settled in Platte City, Missouri. I'm sure you can all tell what's coming up because settling down for them never went really well. This time, when the law showed up at the tourist camp where they were staying, both sides were more prepared for what would happen. It was kind of like when Willem Dafoe yelled out in the Boondock Saints, There was a fire fight! But the Barrows came out on the losing end this time. Blanche got hit in the eye with glass, and Buck fell unconscious from shots he received to the head, only making it out because his wife dragged him into the car. Clyde's driving, as always, helped them to escape, but Buck was in a very bad way and Blanche could hardly see. Ultimately, they were forced to hide out in Dexfield Park in Iowa. When a farmer alerted the police to finding discarded bandages, you know, oops, they forgot to burn all of them, it wasn't long before police descended on the campsite. Tensions and nerves were high in the group, and everyone was worried about Buck, who they all knew was not getting better. Blanche later said that Buck had always promised her if she got hurt, he would get her home. Clyde and Buck must have had a similar belief because that was what Clyde was trying to figure out shortly before the police showed up. We're going to call this, unfortunately, Buck's last stand. The police closed in, and the Barrows did the best they could to get away in their car, but when bullets damaged Clyde's arm, they crashed it. That meant that they had to find another way to get out. They tried to hide, but Buck, who was already being helped along by his wife and trying to fire a gun at the same time, was hit. Blanche managed to get them behind a tree stump to protect them a little bit before Clyde... Well, Clyde left. Clyde, Bonnie, and WD made a run for it into the forest towards the river. Buck tried to get Blanche to leave with them, but by all accounts, Blanche refused to ever leave her husband's side. Now it was just the two of them and the police. She frantically started screaming first to Buck not to die on her, and then to the police that they had to stop shooting because she thought he might already be dead. But if he wasn't dead already, he was going to be dead soon. So either way, she just wanted the bullets to stop. 
Those screams and the bullets that hit Buck were the end of the line for the couple. Soon, Blanche was being dragged away from her husband, and the picture, because, yes, somebody took a picture of it, and I posted it on footnotinghistory.com, is very harrowing. You can see her hair is a mess, her injured eyes are covered, and she's fighting to get back to her dying husband, but that was not allowed. Buck was taken to a hospital with Blanche, but their reunion didn't last for long. While he was being treated, she ended up in a Missouri prison on charges stemming from the Platte City shootout. The couple never saw each other again. Buck managed to give a few last interviews to police about events. Officer Ted Hinton would later write that Buck did his best during this time to make sure Clyde received as little blame as possible. Because, you know, even in the end, Clyde was under Buck's protection. As much as possible, anyway. He died a few days after alternating between delirium and lucidity on July 29, 1933. He was buried without his wife present because she was in custody. Hinton also wrote that he didn't like that Buck was buried without Blanche being at a funeral because it just didn't feel right to him, illustrating for us the gray area when it came to loving and hating outlaws in this time period. Now half blind and totally bereaved, Blanche pled guilty in September of 1933 to charges of assault with intent to kill, even though her memoir claims that she didn't actually fire a shot. Operations could not save the vision in her eye, but it did not stop her from writing her memoirs while behind bars in the Missouri State Pen, where she was supposed to serve up to 10 years. Bonnie and Clyde, during this time, continued a series of crimes before they were gunned down by police, including Hinton, near Gibson, Louisiana, in May of 1934. Clyde was, as you can expect, buried beside his brother Buck. When Blanche was released early from prison in 1939, she was the only one of our foursomes still breathing, and the only one who hadn't wanted to be involved at the start. Still, she was a very young woman, only in her late 20s, and Blanche did remarry, to a man named Eddie that people had said had a personality with similarities to the husband she lost. Although she died in 1988, she had lived to see herself played on screen by Estelle Parsons and commented that the film made her look like a, quote, horse's ass, end quote. She also had renewed her friendships with people from the past, but she did all of this without ever really being able to forget what happened in 1933. And, as her records show, she never returned to such a horrific lifestyle that she hadn't wanted in the first place. The only thing that 1933 cost her was her husband. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!